I'm going to just go ahead and be blunt with you. I have a lot to talk about. Uh, that, and that, and that, and that. Yeah, I have, a, I have a couple notes on this game. But it's also worth noting that that's understandable because Dream Drop Distance is... is the lead-up to the finale. Everything about the entire series comes together within this one game. A lot of things are explained, a lot of new mysteries arise, and basically every element, both thematic and literal, of the previous games is emphasized and present within this one. There is no way I can talk about this game without spoilers. I'm still going to do the little boong thing later on so you guys know. But I'm, I just want to say I'm kind of going to be talking about things in the order that they occurred to me as I was writing it down, so I do apologize for that. Also, one of the things that was most widely requested of me was to explain the time travel aspect of this game. And <laughs> it's worth noting that there's actually two explanations. That's how convoluted it is. Regardless, I'm going to go ahead and put a note down there of a timestamp. It will be very late in the video. It'll be probably one of the last things I talk about. And that will be for anybody who wants to go, go straight to that and hear, you know, the whole time travel thing. Obviously that's spoiler territory for anybody who's knowing. One other thing before I get any further. This is hugely spoilerific, as I already mentioned, and so as a result this being the quote-unquote end of the series as of now, in other words the most recent to the current time, this is the point at which I am going to finally allow absolutely all spoilers for this series, of course, within the comments. So, you know, no, no, no limitations, no uh, restrictions as there has been for every other game in the series. <sighs> Where to start? Uh, let's talk about the intro movie. Let's talk about how awesome it is. There's an opening cinematic, which is probably my favorite intro cinematic in any Kingdom Hearts game ever. Highly symbolic. It's literally a representative of, of what I just mentioned of every game in the series to this date. And a theoretical final clash with Xehanort, which of course has not happened yet. Um, and that's not a spoiler, because Kingdom Hearts 3 is coming out soon, so if you didn't know that, sorry. There's another game after this one. Spoilers! But, um... The way they did it was perfect, because... Oh, I meant to actually have my 3DS here. And you pop it open, the bottom screen shows a silhouette of Mickey, and the top screen shows, you know, what's actually uh, happening in the cinematic part, in the pre-rendered cutscene. But everything on the bottom is representative of everything on the top in a way that's really awesome. Mickey splitting into two, and Roxas comes into play, and the whole... everything becoming distorted and odd when Shion enters. There's actually a few brief moments when Shion is visible on the, in the in the top part, and there's actually three Mickeys down below. It's only there for, uh, I believe, about a second or less than a second, but either way, definitely a nice touch. And one other thing I'm going to mention, I'm just going to mention this in brief, because this is kind of, again, getting into spoilers, but just, just look at the title image sometime with, you know, Sora and Riku, and think about that. I'll talk about that more later. Now, this is one of the most en medias res intros I've ever seen in the Kingdom Hearts series. In fact, it is the most en medias res. I've never seen them actually do something like this to the extent that they have. We literally start the story, you know, full tilt, already going into it. And they introduce this thing called flashbacks. Now, this is kind of cool in its own right, and kind of not. I'm not sure I like the system because, I hate myself for saying this, but we already have a skip cutscene option. If we're replaying and want to skip a cutscene, we can just hit start, and then hit yes. <laughs> 
and then skip the cutscene, you know? There was no need to separate them into these flashbacks. It was mainly done to emphasize the nature of the storytelling of this story, since dreams, obvious by the title, are a very big part of this game, which makes sense when you think about it. Nevertheless, the point is, we start the game, you know, having already accepted the, the stuff that happened in the previous games, already in the middle of the exam, and then, oh my gosh, stuff happens! I can't talk about anything else about that until I get the spoiler section, so let's just move on. Let's see... One of the things... I have a note here called the Nexus Dimension. One of the things that's interesting about Kingdom Hearts is it is, by most definitions, a Nexus Dimension. In other words, it is a place where multiple properties from different worlds that otherwise don't actually connect can connect. Forgive me for the noise. Where the heck... In other words, uh, the usage of the Final Fantasy characters and the Disney characters and whatnot up to this date is exactly indicative of, of that. But there is more potential there, and something that Nomura has been doing basically since the series began is asking about what additional properties or titles they can use in this so-called Nexus. It is therefore no surprise that when the time finally came, they decided to use something else that at the time was still at least relatively popular in Japan. It's one of those games that whenever I mention it to my, you know, friends, gamer friends here in the States, their response is usually, I've never heard of that. It's a game called The World Ends With You, which is another one of those games that is weird to talk about. I haven't done a proper video about it. If I did, it would be summarized by good plot, bad gameplay. <laughs> I mean, that's a huge summarization. You know I don't like to do that because that doesn't get across the full nuances of the game. But the point remaining... It is a game I do recommend in what I call the, the bargain bin. In other words, if you can get it on sale, go for it. It's worth playing. That being said, I do have to mention something really quick. If you play Dream Drop Distance, you will be spoiling the world that the world ends with you uh, in, in several very large ways, so keep that in mind. Here's kind of the interesting thing. In every other instance of something else coming from the world to Kingdom Hearts, it is obviously a version of it. It is an idea rather than the actual literal canon in existence. In other words, the cloud or the squall we see in Kingdom Hearts is not the cloud or squall from FF7 or FF8. As and this is a diff I mention this because this is a different approach from a writing, from a creating perspective, from say Dissidia where that is Cloud, and that is Squall, they're just being pulled into a usual circumstance, and there's a set of rules guiding exactly how and what and where they are. And then, of course, they're dropped back at the end of the city, you know, so the end of that. But you get my point, right? These are not the original entities, and that's been true entirely throughout the whole thing. It is debatable as to whether or not the Disney entities are the original entities, but it's also worth noting that, unlike the Final Fantasy question, most people don't actually care to debate that, which is why I'm not even going to bring it up other than the sentence I'm just finishing right now. Boom! The World Ends With You is kind of unique in that, if you look at it from a certain angle, it could actually still be continuity. I don't think it is, but what we get is the very strong impression that uh, Shibuya, forgive me if I'm pronouncing it wrong, was one of the worlds that was attacked and consumed by the Heartless. And naturally, one of the only survivors of that is Joshua, for spoilery reasons I'm not going to go into right now. Uh, or ever, for that matter. So, Joshua survives, and he's kind of the only survivor, because he mentions he had to take the ideas, the memories, the bits and pieces of his friends in order to try and reconstitute them here, right? And this isn't really spoilers, this is something that happens like in the first frickin' uh, world, so I'm not too worried about that. My point in bringing this up is it's doing... Traverse Town was my second favorite world in this whole game. And the reason why was its application. 
the Traverse Towns we see in Kingdom Hearts Dream Drop Distance was clearly and definedly there to service the plot and story of Dream Drop Distance and of Kingdom Hearts as a whole. We learn more about the setting, we imply more about the setting, the story, the backstory, the history. We learn more about the plot and what's going on. There's several big, you know, plot threads that are, uh, that basically are dropped within this area and we learn several certain significant facts, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It was very well executed. Um, most of the Disney worlds were not. <laughs> and that brings me to something I'm gonna, I'm, I wanna, I, it's, it's actually down here on the list. But I'm, it's right here, poor Disney. Poor usage of Disney. It's, it's actually at the bottom of this page. The most, with very few exceptions, the usage of the Disney movies in this game are the worst I've ever seen them in the entire series. I actually had to kind of revise part of my uh, recommendation of this game to several friends because I was like, look, I know you don't like the Disney sections in some of the games. And it's usually the sections where they do it kind of overboard or they're just not really well executed. You can tell it's just a... I've talked about this before, the pale imitation problem. Remember Pirates of the Caribbean over in Kingdom Hearts 2, how it was just a pale imitation of the movie and didn't really do anything? At least the first time. The second time they did something with it, but you get my point. That's how this game feels with regards to basically all but one of the Disney worlds. Debatably all but two, but I'll get to that later. Point being, when I'm going through Tron, when I'm going through, um, I can barely remember them, uh, Prankster's Paradise, uh, that is to say Pinocchio, which is a little bit of a, the main offenders here were Tron, um, Hunchback of Notre Dame, and, God, I can't even remember the other one. That was so unmemorable. And that's kind of my point. It was so unmemorable. It had so little to do with anything. It didn't really advance the story or plot except for tiny, minuscule little pieces. And each Disney scene, this is the first time in a long time I've actually really, really been tempted to just go ahead and start skipping cutscenes because I was just sick of seeing them. They were irritating. They were awkward. They were poorly done. They had no music. <laughs> that's for those of you who are there for the stream. Although it is a really big problem in this game. The no music counter would have been through the roof on Dream Drop Distance. The only reason I forced myself to watch every cutscene was because I was in analysis mode. I wanted to make sure I didn't miss anything. I didn't miss anything. There was, there was nothing there. But I just wanted to mention that before the recommendation's sake. I would still recommend this game. It's still fun to play. I'll start talking about gameplay in a moment, I swear. And it still has a wonderful plot. Arguably the best central plot of the Kingdom Hearts games to date. Although that is kind of a biased statement because it, it, it wouldn't have been that if not for all of the previous existing games. So, take it for what it's worth. <sighs> Let's go ahead and move down here. Um, flow motion is one of the new things they introduced in this. Now, flow motion is kind of hard to describe with words. If I was to describe it visually, it'd be like this. Oh, you, you didn't do it early enough. Okay. I hope you got all that, because I'm not going to go into it more. No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Flow motion is a method of quick travel which also involves being able to wall jump, dash, and do special attacks based on what type of movement you were doing at the last time when you did the attack. In other words, if you're sliding, you do a different attack. If you are going straight at an enemy from a wall jump, you do a different attack. And if you just finished a jump uh, while in flow motion, you do another attack. And there's a few others. The point here being that flow motion was designed to give you a huge mo uh, feeling of quick flowing movement throughout the game, but also serves to emphasize, again, the dream aspect of the game, that we're just blazing through... <laughs> in this sort of less than, slightly more metaphysical uh, take on it. In fact, this whole game in general tends to be extremely metaphysical. 
talk about that more later, I swear. Point being, it does have an in-story integration and game, gameplay in-story integration thing, in addition to just being, wee, this is fun! Whether or not you'll enjoy flow motion depends on how well you control it, in my experience. Now, I actually was pretty bad at flow motion my first time through, and to the point where I basically just kind of stopped doing it unless it was required. This time through, I made an active uh, effort to go ahead and try and get good at it and use it well. And once you get the hang of it, it's a lot easier to control, because it doesn't really function the way it basically should. I don't know how to explain it other than the fact that you have to take into account that whatever you're bouncing off of for the flow motion, whatever, where you're holding the stick is in relative to you, not the camera. And you probably understand what I mean by that if you're thinking about it. So in other words, I'm holding to the right, which means it'll go this way, as opposed to my right, the camera over there. And once you get used to that, once you really get into the uh, flow of it, no pun intended, it, it's, it, it goes a lot smoother, and I really enjoyed uh, the flow motion a lot more this time. It also ties in a lot with another thing, which is the huge, huge towns. Um, one of the things this game does really, really well, I'm going to mention this at least once more time, because I really want to re-emphasize this, but most of the areas you go through are big. This is actually great for me. I've mentioned before I have a bit of a claustrophobia problem, not a, not an actual claustrophobia, but it, it's leaning in that direction. And when I play games that are very whoom, where I have a small draw, draw distance or all the rooms are very small, it kind of triggers that in the back of my brain. Uh, my favorite example of this is Turok in on the N64, for anybody who ever played that. But a lot of the Kingdom Hearts games have had that problem of feeling very, very small, sometimes to the point where it actually really does bother me. This game... Total opposite. Every other player feels huge and open. There, are, they did really good job on the skyboxes, so it actually feels like there's something over there, over the horizon, from as far as you can go. And there's even they did a really good thing. They actually rendered a lot of the background, the stuff you can't actually move on. So it actually is physically, well, you know, it is rendered there. You can see it. You can see it moving in some cases. And the areas you can move through are huge. If you just walk through, it'll be like because it's this gigantic area you're going through. You get my point. Now, obviously, that's there to encourage the flow motion, but I feel like it was a genuinely awesome move forward for the series as a whole. Probably the biggest place, well, the second biggest place I can emphasize how awesome this was was Traverse Town. You're there in Traverse Town, first district, and everything's pretty much the same. And then you go to the second district, and everything's pretty much the same. And so is the third district. But then you go to the fourth district. Now, I bet some of you out there are going, eh, there's a fourth district? Yeah, exactly. You go to the fourth district, and the fourth district is huge! gigantic, enormous, and you can just go all over the place. And then you go into the mailbox area, to the, to, to the post office, which is bigger than the first three districts combined. Yeah, they actually did a really good job with Traverse Town. I actually had a note here, which was, and I quote, sick of Traverse Town. It has been written out, and I have decided, and, and I wrote a little additional note here, because even though I was initially like, God, I'm so sick of seeing Traverse Town, a, it serves a very strong story, two, actually, very strong story purposes. One specifically for uh, uh, The World Ends With You, and the other for something I can't talk about right now. And B, like I said, they revamped the hell out of it. In fact, if you compare it one-to-one, -one, it's pretty obvious that the place was modeled very clearly and decisively off of Kingdom Heart 1's Traverse Town. But it's different, and I don't know how to better say that. There's there's little touches that weren't there before, most of them up top, because you can flow motion really, really high in the air. So they had to make sure that, you know, when you get up to those roofs and stuff, you can actually see things, because you can get up there. You, you get where I'm going with this. So definitely a, a good thing there. And that's flow motion, kind of in a nutshell. Uh, one other thing I like about the combat in this game... Wait, what? That doesn't make any sense. 
Hang on, having trouble reading my own handwriting. I always hate it when that happens. Oh, uh, yeah, okay. One other thing I do like about the combat in this game is it is not automatic. It has been remarked that Kingdom Hearts 2 is the easiest Kingdom Hearts in the series. Uh, whether that's true or not is obviously going to depend on opinion. In my opinion, Kingdom Hearts 2 is by far the easiest Kingdom Hearts in the series. And the best way I can explain why is you can get through that entire game with two buttons. Other than moving around. Although in combat you don't have to move around. You could literally just do this and get through most combat. And then, you know, hit, hit uh, uh, triangle, green, whatever it is in order to do the reaction things, and just kind of go back and forth between attack and reaction, and you're fine. This game is like the exact opposite of that, in the same way that Birth by Sleep was. If you just try to button mash your way through this, even on the easiest difficulty, you're probably not going to be doing so hot. Uh, you'll probably make it a decent ways through it, but when you start getting to the hard bossler, bosses, like <clears throat> Rinsler, for example, or anything in the last world, <laughs> that's not going to cut it anymore. And things are going to just start crushing you like a bug. And you have to actually do stuff. Now, I like that. Admittedly, I really do like the fact that you... It's the same thing I've always liked about Kingdom Hearts. The same thing that I originally liked about Secret of Mana back in the day. It's that action RPG. It's the action part of the action RPG element. Rather than just selecting do awesome attack and then hitting a button, you move this and do this. It's, it's almost the fighting... It's like the amalgam between RPG and fighting game. Because the idea is you actually do the combos, move around, direct the attacks yourself. Dreamed Up Distance is very big on that. So if you're not into that sort of thing, it's probably going to be a little harder to enjoy this game, in all honesty. That being said, there are a lot of things you can do during the boss fights, which I think are really the shining part about this game. I'll talk more about those when we get to the last world after the spoiler section, but the point being, even the early on bosses, you can just wail on them, you can wail on them, dodge, and use your special abilities, you can use flow motion, you can use the unique abilities that are specific to that boss, because they've always got one little trick to them, which involves reality shifting, which I'll go into in a second, etc., etc., etc. Or if you really feel like it, you could really buff your Pokemon up and just destroy them. I'll talk about Pokemon in a second, too. Reality shifting. I can't talk about reality shifting in full yet, so I'll talk about it as a gameplay mechanic first. Reality shift is every now and again on the bottom screen you'll see this, these arrows, pink arrows aiming down, and you swipe down, and which reality shift you can do depends on the world you're in. And, I'm not, you know, some of them are, they're all uh, touchpad control stuff on the bottom. You know, do this, or do a swipe, or maybe you want to do this kind of a thing, or maybe you want to connect the dots, you know, that kind of a thing, right? All of those are basically optional, but in some cases they're required to actually advance the plot by, you know, opening the way to continue, or some cases they can be used against enemies, especially bosses, as I just mentioned, in order to damage the crap out of them. Overall, I think the reality shift was very well implemented, and is another example of story and gameplay integration, which I can't talk about yet. I hate that no-spoilers rule. I strangle it. Um... <laughs> I'm sorry. It's it's just there's so many things I can't talk about yet in this game until I really get into it. Let me let me say something about that really quick. The reason I keep saying that is because this is a game where it's going to be completely different the second time you play it. In a good way. Um it's one it's one of those stories where everything makes so much more sense once you already know everything that's going on. And so when you go back through it it's like, "Oh, you know, you know what I'm talking about, right? There's there's quite a few things, movies, books, t television, and uh, games that are like this. This is definitely one of those. The second time through, everything is just like, oh. And so, again, my second time through here, this is my second time playing. As I'm going through, I, I was just madly, madly writing down notes. There's a reason I have so many, because so many things popped out at me like, oh, that makes sense. Yeah, so, uh, there are a lot of 
tutorials in this game. I actually consider that a good thing because A, they're skippable, and B, this game introduces a lot of new mechanics that, well, frankly, uh, aren't very self-explanatory. The other reason, though, I like the introduction of the tutorials is another thing. They have these uh, sections, I forget what they're called exactly, but the point is it'll pop up and it'll say, here, here's uh, some some story tidbits, here's some talking about, you know, the recusant symbol, sigil, for example. Here's something talking about the Seven Princes of Light. Here's something talking about, you know, the Keyblade War, you know, etc., etc. And, of course, there's a synopsis for each of the previous games, a very, very brief synopsis. But it's worth noting that everything they emphasize within that synopsis, everything that they bother to mention is something significant for the story of this game, which is why it's in there. Well, one of the two reasons why it's in there. So that you can be reminded of things that you might have forgotten, especially if you're not like me and have a really good memory for uh, stories and stuff. Lore. The other reason it's there is because it was assumed, I don't know if this is correct or not, that they were trying, they basically wanted to get a new generation of players into the Kingdom Hearts series. And that's kind of what Dream Drop Distance was intended to be. Kind of a shame, since it's probably one of the not best, I mean, I don't get me wrong, I do like this game a lot, but if I was to place it on the scale of the Kingdom Hearts where I like it, it'd be towards the bottom. Nevertheless, they put that there for new players, so they can say, oh, well, you know, that's what happened, and that's what happened. So they don't actually have to go out and play the previous games, especially since, as we've discussed, the Kingdom Hearts games, until very recently, and actually this isn't even true as of the recording of this video, uh, you have to buy a billion systems, roughly, I think it's actually five systems, in order to play the entire series. Now soon, that number will be reduced to three, with the uh, with the final mix versions of Kingdom Hearts 1 and Kingdom Hearts 2 coming to the PS3. Good point made. Uh, yeah, Dream Eaters. So, let's talk about Dream Eaters. Dream Eaters are Pokemon. I'm probably going to call them Pokemon from now on. Um, the Pokemon in this game are Pokemon. There, there's your... <laughs> Seriously, though, you, you, you get them. They have a skill tree. It's weird. I don't want to go into the full detail of it. The bottom line here is your strength, abilities, and power is dependent on which Pokemon you select in your active party and how you train them up and how you change their disposition and blah, 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 and what their affinity is. And, of course, they themselves uh, can be decent party members in their own right. The best way I can explain it to you if you've played Kingdom Hearts but haven't played this one is try to imagine the Pokemon as a combination of the party members from Kingdom Hearts 1 and 2, you know, Sora and Donald. And by, I mean Goofy and Donald, excuse me. Um, and the Limit Break system, which is also from Kingdom Hearts 2. Or, it, oh no, that's not what it was called, that was it. You know what I'm talking about, the the the, the red and the yellow, god, I can't remember what they're, they're called, the fusion thing. Dragon Ball Z thing, I don't know, whatever. Point being, because both as Sora and as Riku, by the way, you can play as both. Both as Sora and as Riku, you can merge with them to either do a special attack, like Sora does, well, I can't talk about that, can I? Oh, my freaking god! Okay, we'll talk about that later. They're Pokemon. They're fun. Go play it. Figure it out for yourself. <laughs> Even if you don't go in with a guide, which I did intentionally this time around, you will still have a list of Pokemon, which, you know, a, a party, which is strong enough to get you through everything. Now, I didn't actually go after Julius this playthrough, but point remaining, if you just want to play the game and beat the game, just figuring it out on your own, doing it on your own without a guide or without a, a manual or whatever, will work. If you want the best, if you want the most capacity, I strongly recommend looking it up and researching it and figuring out which uh, Pokemon you want to make when and where and how. 
because it's kind of complicated. It's 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 kind of a com combination of the crafting system for Birth by Sleep in in, ad in addition to the uh, party members and the the limit break thing. Now, one other thing before I continue here that I have to mention is that I really preferred Birth by Sleep's method of alternate advancement. I've talked about alternate advancement a few billion times, especially on my stream, for about three weeks when I was going through the FF series. Were you there? But the point is, alternate advancement, for those of you who weren't there, refers to anything you can do to customize or advance or progress your character in addition to plain old levels. The Final Fantasy series is the best thing I can point to here, because FF5, 6, 7, 8, 9... Uh, 10... Actually, 10 didn't really have anything. So, uh, FF5 through 9, and 10 too, actually, uh, all had alternate leveling paths. They had something in addition to levels that you could do to customize, you know, Materia, Magicide, etc. The Kingdom Hearts series has usually had something like that. In Kingdom Hearts 1, it was incredibly threadbare, to the point where I wouldn't even call that uh, alternate advancement at all. Same with Chain of Memories, because the cards wasn't really... there were It didn't really work like that in Chain of Memories. But in Kingdom Hearts 2... Um, well, actually, I'm going to go ahead and say that Kingdom Hearts 2 wasn't really that big an alternate. The closest thing Kingdom Hearts 2 had to alternate leveling was the uh, leveling up of your drives. That's what they were called, the drive forms. Birth by Sleep is the first one that... Re well, okay, recoded, actually. Uh, excuse me, 358 was the first one to really introduce uh, a, a sort of customization method... Let's go ahead and skip ahead to Birth by Sleep, because that's what I want to talk about. In Birth by Sleep, you leveled. Okay. Then you had your skills. Now, your skills could be uh, maxed, and then they could be combined. And there was this whole crafting system around that. That was the alternate leveling system of Birth by Sleep. It was awesome. I love it. It's probably one of my favorite systems ever. I'd say third favorite, if I was to actually put it on a list. This game uses the Pokemon as the alternate leveling system. And I kind of wish we'd stuck with the BBS system. That being said, it's not that bad. It just takes a lot of getting used to, especially the fact that... You know, I don't know. Just just play the game. You'll see it for yourself. Let me talk about one other thing that I don't like about this game. And that's the fact that the enemies have too much damn HP. Now, what I mean by that is I don't mean that they're too difficult. Quite the contrary. I think the overall difficulty is pretty spot on, especially the bosses. I just think they have too much HP. A boss being difficult... This is a game designer thing, forgive me for prattling on, but if you're going to have a situation where a boss or an enemy or whatever has a large amount of HP, you want to do so for a specific reason. For example, uh, this is often used as a DPS race kind of a situation, you know. Make it so the boss has a few things that you have to avoid, so you can't always be 100% uptime on DPS, and then make him have a ton of health and have a timer or a soft enrage or a hard enrage or something that makes it so you have to push through that health as quickly as possible. Okay. Don't give every enemy from a certain point on in the game and every boss just oodles of health just because. There are too many times, especially on uh, this playthrough, but it was true on my first playthrough as well, where I just got bored on some of the fights. because it, Mostly the trash fights, actually, not the bosses. Because it was just like... Da, 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 dodging everything and doing the flow motion. I'm doing all this awesome stuff. And then I look up and I realize the enemies are at half health. And I'm like... Eh. Okay, I'll keep doing it and keep doing it. It got boring. Don't just pad out a fight by giving the enemies more health. I feel like this was done on purpose because this is overall a pretty short game, all things considered. My first playthrough where I, you know, 100% of the game, got the secret ending, beat Julius, etc. 
was uh, 26 hours, I want to say something like that. Actually, yeah, it's 20-something hours. Not all that long, all things considered. This playthrough was 13, um, which was not doing all the optional stuff, obviously. Just, you know, playing through the main quest. Kind of short for an RPG. Uh, kind of short. And you could say, well, it's on a handheld. No, 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 no. <laughs> Even handheld games can be pretty dang long if they uh, know what they're doing. But I feel like it was done intentionally to kind of pad things out, if you know what I mean. Uh, God almighty, I have so much stuff to talk about. Okay. Can I just get out of the spoiler? Can I just leave the spoiler section? Do I have anything else gameplay-wise to talk about? Hang on a second. Uh, I know this page... This page, every every note to start with thoughts on... Blah, 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 blah. Thoughts on... Blah, 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 blah. Thoughts on... Let's go ahead and check. I think... I don't actually have that much else to talk about the gameplay. Not really. Let's go ahead and... Uh, yeah, screw it, screw it. I'm sick of having this wall of spoilers on me. So, um, <laughs> we're going to go ahead and cut the line here, and we'll talk about, you know, oh, sorry, got another thing. We'll go ahead and start talking about spoilers. Now, oh, I feel so much better. Okay, it was a sled. Okay, it was a sled. It was a sled. Okay, now that I got that out of my system, now i got to rewind and talk about all the things I haven't talked about. Oh, my God. This, see, the problem is this game is so complicated. It does make sense. It actually makes two different kinds of completely different sense, depending on how you perceive it, which I'll get to later. But the point is, this is a stupidly complicated game, and so, yeah, like I said earlier, everything makes it completely different. Okay, so, let's talk about uh, what I talked about earlier about the title, okay? Riku, eyes open, going up. Sora, eyes closed, going down. When I say it like that, it's probably really obvious, but given the fact that Sora falls into darkness... Oh, spoiler alert. Given the fact that Sora falls into darkness, finally, finally, finally comes to, comes to darkness, arguably for the first time in the entire series, I know some people will haggle on the technically on Kingdom Hearts 1 when he willingly released his heart to become heartless in order to free Kairi's heart. That, that's not succumbing to darkness. That's what I just described. He was unleashing Kairi's heart. He actually succumbs to darkness in this game. That's why he's falling, and Sora is the one who's actually sleeping this time. Eyes closed. Riku is, of course, rising up because he's the one who actually uh, becomes the Keyblade Master. Spoiler alert! In this game, he's the one who actually succeeds at his Mark of Master. He's the one who actually accomplishes basically everything. Oh, by the way, spoiler alert again, Riku is actually the main character of this game. And about damn time. I wish they had been, they, they were a little bit more open about it, to be blunt. But it's about time, I think, that we finally got a game where we got to play as Riku, as the main character. Now, if you're, you're probably looking at me kind of weird, because like, well, I thought you could play Sora and Riku equally. Well, yes and no. Sora, in terms of total gameplay time, discounting all optional stuff, if this is the amount of, you know, here, we got Sora here and we got Riku here. Sora and Riku are pretty even until you get to the world that ever was, which is in this game. Spoiler alert. At which point, Riku just kind of screams up here and has most of the end game content entirely to himself. So in, even in terms of pure gameplay, we play Riku more than Sora. But from a storytelling perspective, there is absolutely no doubt this is Riku's story. Let's analyze this from a, from a, from a, a mile up perspective, okay? Sora, during this game, uh, acts like Sora, acts like Sora, acts like Sora, acts like Sora, falls into darkness and is saved by Riku. Riku goes to this game 
comes to comes helps Sora constantly comes to grips with the fact of his true nature and the fact that darkness is still a part of him realizes it basically comes full circle with the path he's been on basically since Kingdom Hearts 1 and then saves the day by going on and saving Sora uh, twice more <laughs> and uh, yeah Save the day. Riku is... I'm sorry, there's no there's no question in my mind here. Riku is the main character of this game. Riku is actually the hero of this game, which is awesome. I also feel like pointing out that I feel like this was partially done... I, I, there were a lot of subtle touches in this game. For example, most of Sora's moves and abilities are based off of Ventus's, which makes a lot of sense, for obvious reasons. But a lot of Riku's moves were based off of Aqua's, which also makes a lot of sense, but in a more quieter way, because after all... Of the three original back in Birth by Sleep, which one actually became a master officially? Only and and oh, of course, he does have some moves like Terra, but it's worth noting that Terra also had, uh, in in the game's own terms, the abilities and power of a master. He just not officially made one. So, we have uh, Terra, who's basically playing in in gameplay terms like Aqua and uh, or excuse me, Riku is playing like Terra and Aqua. Get my names mixed up. Been a long day. I've literally been playing that game all day to get this video out in time. Yeah. Um, and then Sora plays like Ventus, which of course explains why I hated playing like Sora because I actually don't like that that style of gameplay. But I loved playing as as uh, Riku because I love playing as Aqua back in Birth by Sleep. So whatever. Moving on. Reality shifting. That's that's the next point. I'm just going back down the list. What was I What was I talking about? Reality shifting. Okay. One of the things I love about the reality shifting is it changes as the story kind of progresses its natural path. What I mean by that is initially you look at it and it's just a gameplay mechanic. It's just a minigame. By the end of the game, if you're looking at it and still thinking it's something unattached to the story, you're, you're kind of missing something. Forgive me. It becomes very obvious that this reality shifting stuff is a lore mechanic not a gameplay mechanic. And early on it's something silly and light because, you know, dreams, right? But as the stakes are raised, as our characters learn more about what's going on, as we start to realize the full threat, it becomes more and more serious, more and more something that they are actually doing to affect their dream, their world around them, as they're playing, as they're going through this journey. Reaching its absolute culmination in the last world, well, never was, when we actually see two uh, aspects, uh, two different reality shifts, when we finally actually have the shift. Before, everything before, Riku and Sora both had the same reality shifts. When we get to the world that never was, well, okay, that's actually kind of a lie. In Fantasia, they had the same reality shift mechanic-wise, but it accomplished something different. Sora's always did things with the sky, the air, the wind, the weather. Sora, air, yeah. And uh, Riku always did things with the earth, the plants, life, nature, earth. <laughs> yeah. Um, when we get to the world that never was, we have the, I uh, forget what they're called, but Riku's is something about the, cutting the mirage, you know, removing the mirage, and... Sora's is about removing, you know, destroying the nightmare, the nightmare's end, I believe. They're both gameplay-wise the same thing, but they go went out of their way to make them be named the same thing. And whenever either of them does it, the other appears along with them to help them with it. Again, fully emphasizing that this is officially and always has been a lore, a in-story mechanic, not just a gameplay mechanic. Which is awesome, and I really like it. Speaking of which, if you if you're still watching, uh, and you still haven't played this game for whatever reason. I know that I said earlier that I don't fully recommend this game, not nearly as much, and it's lower on the list. But I 
as I was replaying through this, I was confused because I remembered this game a lot more fondly than I was playing through it. And I was wondering, why did I think of this game as so highly? Well, it's kind of the same thing that happened with Kingdom Hearts 1 with me. Because in Kingdom Hearts 1, whenever I replay H1, basically until I get to Hollow Bastion, I'm just kind of going through the motions because there's only a couple of the Disney World I really enjoy. I think only three, actually. Same thing in this one. The first parts of the game were just like, eh, okay, 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 okay. I get to Three Musketeers World, and I was like, okay, I'm with that. That's that's kind of cool. I mean, it's an interesting thing. I'll talk about it more later. And then I got to Fantasia, which was very well done, if not really have anything to do with the story, but it was at least very well executed, so okay. And then I get to the world that never was, and all of a sudden I love the hell out of this game. The gameplay, the story, the the the, the dropping, the way they use everything. That whole last world was like the, ma the masterpiece, and... That's basically why I remember this game so fondly. So if you're playing this game and you're just kind of like, eh, stick it out to the end. Trust me, it'll get so much better. Now then. Where is... Okay, there's Traverse Town, Hunchback of Notre Dame, which I already talked about. Poor usage of Disney, which I already talked about. Okay, I wanted to talk about one other additional thing with, the, with regard to the Disney movies. Okay, spoiler alert. Um, <laughs> I'm going to stop saying that, I swear. Sora... Okay, this is actually stupidly complicated. I'm not even sure where to begin. It is debatable as to whether or not Sora is actually traveling through Sleeping Worlds or not. We're not sure. Still, uh, it is up to debate. Basically, there's two real possibilities. One, he is traveling through the Sleeping Worlds. He's just being followed or two, he's being guided through sleeping worlds that are connected to him in some way. And that's kind of what's been happening through the whole thing. Which one, like I said, I'm not sure which one is actually true. It is my personal theory that he is, in fact, going through these sleeping worlds. He's just going through specific ones in a specific order that is being dictated by the organization, which is guiding him on its path. After all, we do know for a fact they can... They can push him in a certain direction. So, you know, that that's my opinion of what's happening. Point being, Sora's going through the sleeping worlds, whether fake or real. <laughs> I'm sorry, I just, I, I have to comment on the irony of the fact that I'm calling a world, an entire planet, uh, an entire realm, excuse me, dimension, kingdom, whatever you want to call it, that is literally caught within a time-displaced bubble in a dream, sleeping inside of the darkness, real, and the dreamt version of a connection attached to the dream versions of those which are sleeping in darkness, blah, 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 as fake. Like I said, this game gets a little metaphysical. And by a little, I mean 50 metric uh, tons of metaphysical. Riku never actually goes to the sleeping worlds. Riku spends the entire game with basically three exceptions in Sora's dreams. Now, that is actually something that's really, really, really important to keep in mind. First of all, when you're playing through this game, understand when you get to Traverse Town, Riku and Sora interact with each other. Sort of. Kinda. Okay. That makes sense for reasons I'll go into in a minute when I start talking about Traverse Town and the whole uh, Joshua thing. But when they get to the point when they get to uh, whatever the next world was, I keep forgetting what it is, the unmemorable world of Crab, they don't interact. It's, it's Hunchback. Hunchback and Notre Dame. When they get there, they don't interact, they don't interact at all. In fact, the two events that happen on the two sides are so incongruent as to be to the point where they could not have both happened. Which kind of makes you wonder, because they go out of their way to establish 
that both people are interacting in the first world, specifically so that you keep thinking they're both going through this journey when they are not, because again, Riku was never actually on this journey. Riku was always in Sora's dreams. And then we get to the next world and nothing happens the same at all. It happens the same in Tron. Very exact, exact same thing in, in the Tron universe is that the two actions of the two sides are completely incongruent and cannot have happened at the same world, same setting. So what the heck's going on? Now, even this could have been explained with the, you know, the idea, well, it's just a dream. It doesn't have to make sense, right? And yet that itself is the trick because they're trying to make you not think about the fact that these events are incongruent. And then you go back to Traverse Town, and then their events are congruent again. Riku and Sora are, are more or less directly interacting again. Only in Traverse Town. Huh. <coughs> That's odd. Oh, well, let's keep diving through. Then they get to uh, Pinocchio, where their events are totally incongruent again. And then things get interesting. I'm going to pause here because I want to talk about that more later, but I wanted to mention this right off the bat because... <laughs> okay. It's really important to note that you can enter someone else's dreams in this setting that is now established, that's firmly canon, right? That'll be important later for the whole young Xehanort thing, which I'm going to spend 50 years talking about, I swear. <sighs> Hopefully not. And... um the other thing uh, that, that's really important to note is that it explains why the presentation of the two worlds, or excuse me, the two versions of each world is so different. Anytime Sora goes through a world, he's interacting with it like Sora would. He's being the bumbling goofus who's just like, hey, what's up? Well, let's do things, yay! And things just kind of happen around him and he's just a bumbling idiot because that's what Sora, a dull, ordinary boy, if you'll forgive me the quote. Riku... He goes through, and the Disney worlds are still kind of cringeworthy in several circumstances, but one thing they do very, very, very well is that each world is an analysis of Riku as a person. I mentioned before, this is when Riku actually finishes his journey, the, the path he's been on since Kingdom Hearts 1, and his attempts to go ahead and reach the point where he could finally accept himself, who he is, what he is, what he wants to be, and how he chooses to do it, that he could ironically do the same thing that Xehanort did, but for totally different reasons. You see, Xehanort completely embraced the darkness rather than succumbing to it. And that's exactly what Riku ends up doing. And it's because of the fact that as he's been going through this journey, he starts to realize more and more that is, he keeps fighting against the darkness because he thinks he should, because he thinks that's what should be happening. But he himself says it the very first time he encounters Ansem, Ansem the Seeker of Darkness. I walk the path to dawn, which is neither light nor darkness, as established way back in Chain of Memories. So, interesting thing there. Now, apologies, i got to turn something on really quick. Hopefully I won't have to edit this out. I <sighs> just want to make sure this is working, which it is wonderful, wonderful. Sorry, I've been having a lot of technical issues lately. Some of you may have seen that in some of my videos. Hmm. Still working on it. Alright. Let's go ahead and talk about the Dreaming Worlds first. I have a section here called Thoughts on the Dreaming Worlds and the Idea of Tartarus. One of the things that has been established to date very strongly is the cosmology of Kingdom Hearts' verse. Now, one of the most important rookie mistakes... Uh, 
that tends to be made is the assumption that, that well, okay, they use the term world to mean two different things. There are the worlds, a.k.a. all the different you know planets and realms that they visit, and then there's the world, which actually refers to the whole dimension, the whole setting, basically. Except even then, they usually use the term the world to only mean the realm of light, which brings me to my next point. There are three realms that are firmly established within Kingdom Hearts. Realm of Light, Realm of Dark, and the In-Between Realm. Now, fun fact, based on all the information we have seen and uh, some certain interviews from Nomura, we've never actually seen the Realm of Darkness. Not not really. We, I mean, we have seen it, but that's actually my point. We have only glimpsed it. We have never actually been in the Realm of Darkness in the entire games, ever. And you're probably like, well, you're kidding, we go there all the time. No, no, no. At the end of the world, at the end of Kingdom Hearts 1, we were at the furthest part in the realm in between up to where the darkness began. And it is debatable as to whether or not we were glimpsing the world of darkness between that. I think we were, personally, for reasons I'll go into in a moment. But that was still the borderline. On the other side of the door where Riku and Mickey ended up, that was actually the world of darkness. Okay. Second point, at the end of Kingdom Hearts 2, when they're on the Dark Meridian... Well, the Dark Meridian is literally described as the border. The, that beach is the edge of the world that, uh, of the, of the in-between realm. And that ocean they were looking out at is actually the realm of darkness, which they never actually go into or see anything else about. So take that for what it means. And there's a few other examples I could go into specifically, but the final interesting one is the one and only time we've really seen a shot inside the thing. Because I just realized that there's a playable section, which I, of course, have not played because it's not in the US version. Uh, in Birth by Sleep, where you can actually play as Aqua in the Realm of Darkness for the first and only time in the series, where we actually see the Realm of Darkness and what it's like there. Very unique aesthetic, and it's one that they keep maintained through several aspects. Whenever they try to show off something that is close to or is in the Realm of Darkness, it looks kind of like that. We see this again in Dream Drop Distance action when you fight the second form of Ansem. So, I mention this to just, just as an interesting point. We see the realm in between a lot, actually. Uh, Traverse Town is there, Twilight Town is there, the world that never was was there, uh, Oblivion Castle and the, uh, the Realm of Departure were there, blah, 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 blah. And of course, everything else, the primarily place of the games exist in the world of light. Why am I talking about all this? Where do the sleeping realms exist? It's never stated outright in any overt way, but it is my opinion, it is my belief, it is my theory that the sleeping worlds are, in fact, in the realm of darkness. And ergo, one of the first and only times we've ever actually, uh, not counting the birth by sleep thing I just mentioned, played in the realm of darkness is throughout this game as we're going through these sleeping worlds, assuming they are actually sleeping, because I mentioned that earlier. But assuming they are... These are worlds that are still trapped within the darkness. Now, due to their sleeping nature, they cannot be reached by the Heartless. This is something that's emphasized several times. But darkness still can manifest there. That's how the Dream Eaters and the Nightmares come out. I'll talk more about that a little bit later. But the point here being, it is my theory that... The, that it's best to consider the entire Kingdom Hearts setting as a setting galaxy, realm, dimension, whatever word you want to use, that is still broken. And I mentioned the word still. I know some of the fans of this series out there are going to be looking at me going, well, duh. But what I mean by that is, after the original war, after Kingdom Hearts was, you know, tossed into the realm of darkness, and has never been seen ever since, 
and we still know virtually nothing about it in actual fact. We only have theories. Um, ever since that point in time, the war the entirety of the setting has been fractured because originally it was an amalgam of light and darkness, and now we've got these three realms, and everything's just kind of jumbled and all over the place, and Heartless are running around consuming worlds, which are pulling pulling apart them, and some of them go into the realm of darkness, and some of them go into the realm in between, and sometimes they just kinda of end up in the in this nether void. So my point is if this if this setting, if this concept is true, which I firmly believe it is. The sleeping worlds are another symptom of the incredibly broken nature of this dimension, of this setting, whatever you want to call it. They are worlds that have fallen from the realm of light very, very, very far, probably the furthest, uh, I'd say the second furthest actually possible, into the realm of darkness. You know, if you were to consider it as a line, furthest light, furthest dark, they're like over here. Um, but because they are so... Their hearts, the hearts of the world and the people within them are so locked tight within, you know, the quote-unquote dream state, the sleep, they cannot actually be properly influenced by external forces. You have to actually move into those dreams in order to influence them and unlock them, and thus the world can re-emerge re over here in the realm of light. That also explains the time distortion effect of it, where you're seeing uh, phantoms, images dreams of things that have been or might have been or should have been and the reason why they a lot of things don't make literal sense so much as they make metaphoric sense within those worlds it also makes me wonder if that is true if we have been going through the sleeping realms where exactly the world that never was sits on this we know the world that never was sits somewhere in the realm in between in kingdom hearts 2 but given the control they have over that world... Well, you know what? I'll talk about that later. I'll talk about that later. Let's talk about Kingdom Hearts. Let's talk about Kingdom Hearts. Yeah. The actual entity, or being, or object, or realm, we don't know. And that's kind of my point. The thing that gives the series its name is the thing we know the least about. I could list the actual facts, all of them, if I went into minutia. It's something like 11. It would be funny if it was 13, wouldn't it? But no, uh, we know that Kingdom Hearts is a thing. Um, we know that... <laughs> I'm tempted to say that's it, but no, there is one important thing we know. We know that Kingdom Hearts, during the Keyblade War, or as a result of it, could have been deliberate, we don't know, was tossed from... When, when the realm split, it went way into the realm of darkness. The way it is described, it is likely that the Kingdom Hearts itself went to the furthest dark endpoint. Remember I mentioned you know, the second furthest. This is as far as it gets in. They are at the absolute darkest point within the realm of darkness. But what is Kingdom Hearts? We have no idea. And that's kind of my point. They almost have to cover this in Kingdom Hearts 3, unless they're saving that for something unrelated to the Xehanort Saga, which is actually very feasible, because they could end the Xehanort Saga in Kingdom Hearts 3 with a spoiler as to Kingdom Hearts, the, the thing's true nature, which then leads into another adventure, and honestly, that's what I'm predicting will happen. But whatever. Point being, I do have a couple thoughts on the matter. First of all, I'm going to assume Kingdom Hearts is kind of literally the heart of the setting. It's kind of something that makes sense when you think about it, because it's kind of described that way. But again, considering everything we know about it is basically conjecture or assumption or interpretation of old myth, yeah, we have no idea. So, that being said, I do think Kingdom Hearts is actually the heart of the entire setting. You know, worlds have hearts, people have hearts, in some cases objects can have hearts. 
A puppet can have hearts. A nobody can have hearts. Therefore, the entire setting, Elving, has a heart. Why then would that heart go into the furthest and deepest darkness? Now, I know a lot of you have heard my theory about Sora either actually being or being an aspect of Kingdom Hearts, which doesn't actually... It, it, it's something that would work with this theory that I'm about to postulate. But, well, let's just say that I think Kingdom Hearts went into darkness on purpose. One of the things that is actually the, the hidden uh, subtext, the hidden theme of the entire Kingdom Hearts series is the idea of balance. Balance between light and dark. And in between, for that matter. And I think Kingdom Hearts, whether an individual or an entity or a, a sentient being or an instinctual movement of a beast or creature, whatever, deliberately moved as far as it could into the realm of darkness as a source of light, as a counterbalance as a way to cape everything from going too far. Like happened in Final Fantasy III, for those of you who are present for my big lore run of that, I think that this was in the Kingdom Hearts attempting to avert exactly what happened in Final Fantasy III in, in the previous iteration, when, when the, the, war, the light overtook the entire world, and light became so overpowered and so imbalanced that the world was on the precipice of destruction, etc., etc., that sounds a hell of a lot like the Keyblade War when you think about it, doesn't it? And no, I'm not accusing them of, of rehashing ideas. Don't, don't mistake me. I'm just getting across the idea of the theme. That Kingdom Hearts itself may have been the thing they were fighting over, or maybe the Keyblade was what they were fighting over. Again, we have so little information on the Keyblade War. But one way or another, the forces of light were the ones that were fighting over each other. And that's why I think that the light decided, that is to say, Kingdom Hearts, decided to leave the light, leave the realm of the light and go all the way into the realm of darkness. Did the realm of darkness become created at this point, when, when, the, when the setting was shattered into these different worlds, or was it always there? Again, we don't know. I like the idea personally that it was actually created as a result of this shattering, that originally there was just one setting, the realm, dimension, whatever you want to call it. And then the Keyblade War started and light just started getting out of control, and so Kingdom Hearts shattered the entire realm all the different worlds became split up, you know, all the different Disney worlds and the Final Fantasy worlds and all that fun stuff all split up, and then it created an entirely another realm at the other side of the coin, the Realm of Darkness, and split up most of those worlds into the Realm of Light. And then Kingdom Hearts itself plunged into the Realm of Darkness to help counterbalance things. It is worth noting that, that is, if that is true, it would also partially make sense, because from our knowledge, there's basically nothing in the Realm of Darkness except for things that have been taken there by the Heartless, right? Okay, so if that's true, that would also make sense as to why Kingdom Hearts would go in there. Because if you think of it like a, like a pulley system here, we've got all these worlds over here in the realm of light and nothing in the realm of darkness. But the idea here being that Kingdom Hearts itself, by itself, could balance things out. Which also adds kind of a sinister thought to the fact that the Heartless were, you know, pulling things into the realm of darkness. But anyways, let's move on. Ah, Kingdom Hearts, yes. Let's talk about Riku. Riku is a dream eater, for all intents and purposes. Not literally. He's not literally a dream eater, because <laughs> this is something so quiet they almost never even talk about it. And it's funny because it's so in keeping with the theme of the entire series and, and Riku's personal journey throughout. Dream eaters are constructs of darkness. I mention that very importantly. Because there's something, you just kind of assume nightmares are bad, dream eaters are good, right? Because, yeah, sure. Both 
are creatures of darkness. Both are constructs built out of darkness. They are darkness manifested. What else do I have to say about that? It's so sense-making when you really think about it. And it's actually ingenious in its own subtlety. But there's a few other subtle hints that they do about that. I mean, obviously there's the thing on Riku's back, which didn't make a lot of sense to a lot of people when this game first came out. We're like, why the hell is that on his back? The fact that he is a dream, he is acting as a dream eater of his own accord, I might add, is actually really cool in its own right. Because when the trial began, Ansem uh, cast Sora into into sleep. We don't know if he went into his own dreams or the sleeping worlds. I mentioned this earlier. We're not going to rehash that. The point is, Ansem flung Sora. Riku willingly flung himself into Sora's dreams. So one way or another, we know exactly where Riku was, even if we're not sure where Sora was. Riku was in Sora's dreams, acting as a dream eater, taking care of Sora's nightmares, trying to help him face everything that he was, all the nightmares, both literal and metaphorical, throughout his life. That is also why, as I mentioned earlier, as you go through the worlds, the interaction between the two becomes a little bit more and more apparent, and it reaches the part where the two sides are effectively interacting with each other because Riku is helping Sora... In this is an Inception thing, by the way. I'm, I'm just going to say that. There's no other way for it. You know, we got Riku here, and we got Sora here. Now Sora's in a dream, so he's either he's either in his own dreams or he's in the dream world. Take your pick. But either way, Sora's down here. The, the real world's up here somewhere. Riku's down here. Both of them are dreaming, but he's actually attached to his dreams, so his dreams can still affect his. That's kind of the important part, though. Sora never helps Riku out. Sora never does anything that helps Riku on his path. Not when, when you look at it, when you structure it, that, that never happens. Riku is always the one who helps unlock things, who helps work things, who helps make things work for Sora. And that makes sense because Riku is the one in Sora's dreams, right? Now, the other thing, though, that's interesting is that Riku, his physical appearance. This is a question I've actually been asked before, and uh, it's kind of interesting because... Riku is pretty much fully, you know, a teenager at this point. We see his real form several times, mostly in cutscenes, sometimes in flashbacks, and at the secret ending, of course. But the Riku who we play as looks a lot more like the kid Riku. Why? Because he is a manifestation of Sora's... You're going to take this the wrong way. Sora's dream of him. Sora is someone who was really good friends with Riku, and then Riku just kind of went away, and then a year passed... (laughs) And then lots more adventuring happened, and then he finally reinteracted with Riku. Yay, you're back, Riku! And you look different. That's okay, I'm cool with that. Whatever. But then pretty much immediately after that, we're talking a matter of days after his reunion with Riku, finally, he then goes into this Mark of Mastery exam. You get where I'm going with this. The point is, Sora does not remember Riku as his present form because he hasn't really interacted with him overly much in his present form. He has always remembered the child Riku, just like he himself looks more childish when he is in his dreams, because that's what he most strongly identifies with. And of course the recusant symbol, which I'll go into later. But anyways, I mentioned here the Sora's personality forming thing. There have been a lot of theories tossed out as to why Sora acts like like a dingbat in this entire game. I think it's a combination of circumstance. One, this is Sora finally being allowed to act like Sora. For good and for bad. I'll talk more about that later. 
the point being him being the goofus. He's him being the 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 happy go lucky. Yeah, everything's great. Let's just do things and it'll work out kind of guy. We all know people like that in real life, or at least I do. And those kind of people are actually pretty easy to get along with overall, as long as they don't do something incredibly stupid, which sometimes happens. Not the kind of person I would want to play as, which also is probably part of why I was enjoying playing as Riku more, because Riku actually had a frickin' brain as you're going through. In fact, that's kind of a plot point. Um, but the other theory I've heard is that Sora is basically happy at this point in time. And I know that sounds weird, but I like that theory because it adds weight to what happens at the end of the game with the tragedy of Sora falling into darkness and basically losing himself. You see, ugh, Sora spent pretty much all of Kingdom Hearts 1 and Chain of Memories and 2 <laughs> trying to find his friends, Kairi and Riku, reunite with them, make things better, blah, blah, blah. By the time Dream Drop Distance has, has started, in his mind, he has basically succeeded. He has accomplished his goal. Now, I'm not saying that he doesn't think there's any danger or threat on the horizon. I'm saying that he is now prepared to face it because he has Kairi and Riku. He has found them. He has met his friends. He feels complete because he is once again together with them. You see where I'm going with this. So the idea here being that he is literally happier than he has been in the entire series because even though he's still got lots of horrible trials to come ahead, he is no longer afraid of them. He no longer has any dread of them. Which, again, I like, especially because it makes his fall all the more sweet. But again, I'll get to that in a moment. Um, I already mentioned that. I already mentioned that. So, it's kind of a shame, if you'll forgive me for being blunt. Oof, I'm resting my back because my back hurts like crazy right now. It's kind of a shame that they didn't actually use time travel in this game. Excuse me. What I mean by that is that they didn't use time travel for the main characters. In really, really weird ways, it could be argued they do, but I don't think they do. I strongly disagree with the idea that they were time traveling in this game. It is far, far more likely that they were interacting with piece, bits and pieces of worlds that were left within the darkness, within the quote-unquote dreaming realm... And, as I mentioned before, those worlds simply do not obey linear time in the same sense. After all, they're dreaming and in the near furthest bit of darkness. So, as I was going through Prankster's Paradise, I thought how interesting it would be if, you know, when he encounters Jiminy, when he encounters Pinocchio, when uh, all these things happen with Sora, it, it, in uh, Fantasia as well, and uh, the Three Musketeers, how interesting it would be if that was actually them time-traveling rather than going through the dreaming realms. But, having analyzed it and really thought about it extensively, I don't think that's true. It would have been an interesting concept and opportunity kind of missed, but nevertheless, I don't, I don't think that's what I'm going for. I also want to mention the Three Musketeers. Three Musketeers was the first world uh, that wasn't Traverse Town that I really enjoyed. And I think the biggest reason why is they used it to examine the characters. In that, we had pretty much all the main Disney cast... <laughs> At their formative years, if you know what I mean. We learn, based on information, that this is pretty much right after Mickey had first been taken on as apprentice by Yen Sid and had been made aware of the different realms and, you know, allowed transit between them, right? 
So he had come here with Donald and Goofy, and possibly other people too. We're not 100% sure how that actually works, but we know for a fact that that is definitely Mickey, Donald, and Goofy. I mention that because we're not sure if that's Minnie and Pete or not. However, based on the way it goes, I think that actually is Minnie and Pete. Yeah, it's it's kind of complicated, but the idea is that after their adventures there, the ones that actually happened, not the ones in the, the dream in the game, uh, Minnie and Pete ended up coming back with them to, you know, wherever. Uh, the end, I suppose. Or it could also be argued that that is a form of the Disney-verse, the Disney town, just a different uh, aspect of it. It certainly would be fitting in, in the, shall we say, cartoony inconsistency of Disney town, wouldn't it? Nevertheless, the reason I liked it so much was it showed us a lot of Mickey, uh, Donald, and Goofy and their characters' traits developing. Unfortunately, that world was pretty short, so we only see a tiny few tidbits each. But we do see Donald start to overcome his cowardice and start to actually become the brave, you know, court wizard, basically, that he would eventually become. We see Goofy starting to use his brain. Uh, for those of you who've watched my streams and heard me talk about Kingdom Hearts, I've said many times that Goofy is one of the smartest characters in the series. We see the beginnings of that here in uh, in The Three Musketeers Land, where he starts to actually have ideas of his own, which actually work. Holy moly. It's like It's like using your brain works. It's so weird. And so forth and so on. And, of course, the idea that Mickey himself has to rise up to the occasion of being a musketeer, which in every way, shape, and form could be just replaced with the word a keyblade wielder, or a keyblade knight, if you prefer. And it pretty much fits one-to-one, -one, and you see where I'm going with that. Before I go on, though, I have to talk about something about the Three Musketeers land. This could be a con This could be a plot hole, basically. It could be a product of time and development difficulties, or it could be deliberate. I'm not sure. But the Three Musketeers land... First of all, it was the first world since Traverse Town where Riku's interaction with Sora's dream actually affected Sora's dream. Which is pretty cool. And also kind of a, a, a building up and foreshadowing to the finale. But there's no interaction from the organization members here at all. Remember that time travel theory I mentioned back in Prankster's Paradise? It kind of got a revisit here because we don't see the enemy's manipulation or interactions here at all. And there's a few other things about the Three Musketeers that are just a little bit different from the other worlds. I mentioned the no separation thing between the two. I mentioned the fact that this is, thanks to Sora's intervention basically, us, uh, Donald, Goofy, and uh, Mickey kind of begin those character paths I mentioned earlier. I'm, again, I'm not really saying that it's a time travel thing. I don't think it is. But I do think that either it was a mistake, or this is some kind of foreshadowing or foreshadowing of them actually interacting with either Echoes of or the actual past. I'm not sure which. I just wanted to mention it kind of stoke the fires of thought. I'm f feel free to toss me your theories. I, I always welcome them. My own personal theory, for anybody who's curious, is that what they were actually doing there as they fell further and further into dreams is that they actually hit upon a dream of Mickey himself as Mickey... Oh, actually, excuse me, not Mickey. Uh, this is hard to explain. I'm just going to say it like this. They, they stumbled onto a dream of Kingdom Hearts itself. 
a dream of something that happened a long time ago, well before Birth by Sleep even began, actually, and was kind of a unintentional thing, an accident. And the whole deal with the organization and their manipulations didn't work there because their reach didn't extend that far, basically. They had no capacity to influence them there. And in fact, if Sora and uh, Riku hadn't you know, gotten out and then kept diving, they might not have been able to reach them again. Of course, once they get to Fantasia, you know, back on track. But you get the point. Uh, let's go ahead and talk about Traverse Town really quickly. Some people have told me that Traverse Town is inconsistent uh, with the rest of the worlds in this sense, given the whole Inception thing I mentioned earlier. I actually disagree pretty strongly because in most of the other worlds, most of the in-between worlds, let's call them that, uh, in between Traverse Town and Three Musketeers, Sora and Riku have virtually no interaction. In fact, they have zero interaction, right? Their, their two worlds are incongruent. And yet in Traverse Town, they are very congruent. It is also worth noting that Traverse Town is finally defined in this game as a morphic uh, realm world, whatever you want to call it. A setting that basically exists when it is needed for people who are cast off and otherwise are having difficulties. That's why it exists in the in-between, because people who came from either the realm of light or the realm of darkness would be able to end up here equally, right? It's what happened to Sora way back in Kingdom Hearts 1. So Joshua makes this place, this particular world, and brings these uh, people to it. There's two possibilities that both explain what's going on there, though. One, they are... <sighs> actually, there's three possibilities. God, this is so complicated. Either that actually is a place in the sleeping realm, it, it, the sleeping realm, in other words, very far within the realm of darkness that Joshua has specifically created to attempt to rebuild, recreate, in order to bring his friends back to life after they were destroyed and their hearts consumed and possibly their bodies killed as well by an invasion of the Heartless and Shibuya being destroyed. Or... It's possible that Sora and Riku... Uh, you know what? I'm not, I'm not going to get messed with the other ones, because I like that, that theory the best. There's a bunch of other possibilities. It might have been a dream. It might have been a connection of Kingdom Hearts. It might have been because they're too close to the surface. Blah, 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 blah. Point being, uh, if you think of it from the perspective that I just mentioned, that this is basically an artificially generated... Well, I shouldn't say artificially generated, because all Traverse Towns are artificially generated. But this is a, a version of, of Traverse Town that has been generated by... Uh, by Joshua, specifically to save his friends, but then when he did it, 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 things were going unusually and not really working according to plan until Sora arrived, and then Riku arrived in Sora, because Sora needed someplace to go after he had lost his way. That's actually what happened uh, when Ansem, the Seeker of Darkness, cast him into the sleep, remember? So Sora ended up in this Traverse Town, possibly or possibly not in the realm of sleep. Again, we're really not sure, and it almost doesn't matter. But then Riku, who drove, dived into Sora, also formed a Traverse Town, a connected Traverse Town, because Traverse Town itself breaks the rules of the other worlds. It's not the same as other places. It actually exists for the user, basically. And so that's how they were so integrally connected, because they are so integrally connected, and that's the way they managed to be aware of that connection, because it breaks the rules. All the other worlds, there was almost no interaction until they got closer and closer to actually realizing their circumstance, and Reek was able to actually affect Sora's dream. Make sense? I hope so, because I'm not explaining that again. Holy crap. Okay. Fantasia was an interesting world, because from an execution and an uh, engineering perspective, it was pretty much flawless. 
Forgive me for not listing everything, but the things they did in Fantasia were extensive. Your attacks do musical notes. Um, the songs change based on uh, the areas you're in, and you go th as you go through the different areas, the specific songs that are being presented are specific to Sora and Riku to highlight their respective journeys throughout the entire series. The fact that, as I mentioned earlier, Sora's uh, reality shifts change the sky, whereas Riku's change the ground. The fact that Riku's the one who ends up defeating Chernabog, which is really indicative of what's about to happen with Sora, because he's inside Sora, and then is able to affect Sora's dream, which enables him to complete the sound idea, so that in Sora's dream he can go ahead and go defeat the Spellican, blah, 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 blah. It's all very well engineered. Doesn't have a lot to do with anything plot-wise, not really. It only really emphasizes one thing in, as far as the story and plot that's very significant, and that's the fact that Riku is, in their own words, immune to the darkness because he has accepted and embraced the darkness in basically the same way that Ansem has. Uh, or Xehanort, actually, I guess I could just say flatly. So, that's interesting as well in its own right. Now, oh my goodness, okay. I also want to point out that uh, the usage of the song Dearly Beloved, the title scrawl for pretty much the entire series, as the sound idea they find in Fantasia, that was actually really cool. One other thing I want to mention here is that during the uh, refights against, uh, you know, Ansem and Xemnas and, I guess that's it, well, Vanitas as well, but anyways, well, not Vanitas, more like, it's complicated. Point being, all of the battle refights, they could have just done what they have done in the past and basically rebuild those fights, but they actually went really far out. One thing I've really liked about Kingdom Hearts ever since Kingdom Hearts 1 is they really have a good uh, boss design team, an encounter team, in other words, for lack of a better term. A lot of the bosses in the Kingdom Hearts series are one of the reasons I enjoy playing the series so much, not just watching it, because, you know, my attachment to the story, the lore, and the setting. And this game is no exception. The boss fights, pretty much the moment you hit the world that never was onwards, are all amazing, and they're all new. Now, obviously, Xemnas' abilities and Ansem's abilities both are based, in many ways, off of their original forms, but they do something new with it in all cases. All i got to say is Ansem Form 2. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, feel free to YouTube it or just play the game yourself, but holy crap, man. Probably one of the hardest fights in the game. I'd say actually the second hardest fight in the game for me personally was Ansem Form 2. The fact that I was just having... Oh my god, that just... Yeah. <clears throat> that was a fun fight. But, uh... I really wanted to give them props for that. I also want to mention one other thing that really came to me as I was going through the world that never was. Sora is Disney. Riku is Squaresoft. Let me back up and explain that a bit. You might be looking at me and saying, duh, to the Sora is Disney thing, because he embodies so many of those Disney mentalities. But at the same time, when I say that I mean older Disney... You know, I, I don't mean like uh, the, when the good old days were good. No, I mean like the way Disney kind of used to be and really isn't like that anymore. Uh, as far as their movies, as far as the works they put out, you know, the kind of happy-go-lucky, things will just work out, zany. You know, it, it describes Sora in many ways, doesn't it? And Riku, in many ways, embodies the kind of personality that happened very strongly within a lot of Square Soft's games. You know, the early Final Fantasies and... Uh, you know, Chrono Trigger, and Secret of Mana, and Breath of... Uh, well... Yeah, they worked on Breath of Fire, didn't they? The first one? I can't remember. I know they worked on one of the Breath of Fires. And I know they also worked on Super Mario RPG. 
Point being, I say Square Soft specifically to get across the point because just as Sora is old Disney, Riku is old Square. You see where I'm going with that? And I just felt like it's interesting because, you know, Riku's the one who thinks, Riku's the one who behaves, pays attention, is, you know, awesome and powerful and all this fun stuff. Sora's the one who's just like, Wah! and just wacky and silly and over-the-top things. I mean, look at their limited abilities with their things. Sora hops on the back of his Meow Puff, whatever it was called, and stomps on everything. <laughs> Riku merges with him and gains the ability to, to teleport or a, a massively huge sword or, you know, vastly increased damage or attack rate, you know, blah, 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 blah. I'm sure you see the comparison I'm going with here. Oh, by the way, one other thing I meant to mention earlier is the fact that, uh, obviously, another hint that Riku was a Dream Eater or acting like a Dream Eater all along is the game itself actually mentions Dream Eaters can merge to create more powerful effects, but Sora never merges with them. Riku does. Anyways... There's a huge section of World That Never Was, especially when you start as Sora, that is what I like to call a Dumbledore section. No offense to Harry Potter. Actually, I like Harry Potter. But the point is when Dumbledore comes in and just kind of starts explaining things, and Zigbar kind of, Zigbar and young Zaynor both kind of fill that role for Sora in the World That Never Was, as they try to start to explain basically everything that's been happening throughout the plot thus far. One of the things I really like about how they presented it is, first of all, they did something unique. They put the camera into the first-person perspective of Sora for huge sections of it. That really forced upon you, the player, to, to be seeing what Sora sees, obviously, but also to feel how he's feeling. They did a lot of visual effects with it. By the way, don't play that section with the 3D on. Headache-inducing. Um, they, did, they really, you know, did a lot of effects to emphasize how powerless you are, and it really emphasized that dream feeling of things, which is also appropriate because this is when Sora goes another layer further into dreams, which I'll talk about in just a moment. Um, but the general helplessness that Sora was actually feeling, and indeed was helpless as a result of, really gets across during those scenes. It was very well directed. It was very well executed. Now, what? Oh, the reality shift thing. Yeah, I, men I mentioned the reality shift thing earlier, basically. I, I, I wanted to re-mention it here, because this is the world where Sora's reality shift is midnight, you know, end, or, or no, nightmare's end, and Riku's is mirage's end. Riku is trying to wake up. Sora is trying to defeat his nightmares, which involves being further into sleep. Makes sense? It's also interesting because this is the section when Sora... I, I mentioned I'll talk about this. Let's go ahead and uh, let's go ahead and talk about how Sora's an idiot. Every game up to this point, Sora has been a very effective wrench in the plans of his enemies. Sort of. Actually, he's been a complete and utter tool, but I'll get to that in a minute. Um, but the point is he has appeared to be a wrench in the plans of his enemies. At least in some cases, he actually has been a wrench. Maleficent... Uh, most of the Disney villains. He, he's been actively someone who has just kind of walked in. And the way Sora is a wrench is something I talked about in FF12, actually, for those of you who are there for that lore run. You can have all the plans and, and knowledge and, and traps and all this wonderful p uh, manipulation in the world, but as moment someone decides they care more about just dealing with you than all the consequences of that, your plans mean nothing. It's, it's actually something in Grand Theft Auto V as well, to bring a really weird example to this. The reason they are finally able to deal with the rich bastard is because Trevor doesn't care. He, you know, he is more interested in dealing with the problem, the rich bastard, than anything else. 
you get the point. So Sora is exactly like that. He's someone who is a who is by his nature a wrench. He just kind of bundles forward wildly and destroys everything in his path. He has uh, in in Kingdom Hearts two that actually irritated the crap out of me. Although upon replaying for the low run, I have to admit I was a little more kindly disposed toward him than I thought because of how broken Sora was at that point in time. But in Dream Drop Distance, Sora is reformed. He's a person again. He's he's come to peace with everything that's happened. You know, blah, 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 blah. Everything's great. Yeah, wrench, wrench. Except this was Xehanort's plan. Because Sora being a wrench, Sora blithely stumbling onwards and doing his whole thing is exactly what Xehanort wanted him to do. Because in order to cause him to fall fullest into darkness, he had two things he needed to do. One, he needed Sora to actually fall into his own dream, to fall another layer further into the dream. Why? Because as we've already discussed, the dream realm, the, the realm of dreams, is pretty much close to, not actually, but close to the furthest dark you can get. Very far into the realm of darkness. So he would be completely and utterly consumed, or not consumed, excuse me, surrounded by and oppressed by darkness at all points within that dream. And then two, they would fight him. Now, they gave him the option to join willingly, but I don't think any of them actually thought he would take them up on that. The point was, Xemnas then fights him. Why? To wear him out, to wear down his defenses, to make it so he is too weak to resist anymore in that realm, which is already crushing him. And yet the irony is, Sora could have, Sora could have fixed it so easily if he had just woken up, but he was Sora. That's what he does, he just blindly blunders in, and that's what they wanted to happen. Sora kept seeing all the different hearts and all the different memories that were connected to his. Actually interacted with Roxas on his way down. Arguably interacted with Xion as well. Depends on how you interpret that. Definitely didn't interact with Terra or Aqua. Those were just dreams, memories, whatever you want to call them, figments. But as he's going down there, he he just blundered for You see where I'm going with this? He blundered for He's like, no, come on, stop. And even as Riku, who is actually physically at his previous form... Uh, you know, as, at his dream, at his sleeping form, is like, stop, you don't understand. You know, wake up, you idiot. Sora just blithely runs food, because that's what Sora does. Before I go on, one talk, one thing to note about the Roxas thing. I absolutely loved so much of the exposition at the end of this game, because not only did it make a lot of things make a lot of sense, it was pretty much spot on for the points they had to hit. Number one, Roxas... Roxas had a rough life. All 358 days of it. I know, it was actually a few more days than that, but you get the point. Oh, that'd be 350, uh, no, 365 days, I guess? Anyways. He had a rough life. He had a lot of really bad things happen to him. He had a lot of anger and rage and refusal at it. And at the end, he had found a form of peace in himself by accepting that he was a part of Sora. It is then ironic that Sora himself denies that and says, no, 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 you deserve to be your own person just as much as I do. Which is awesome. And then the next thing that is mentioned, well, it's not mentioned, the next thing that happens is Roxas finally, for the first time, unlocks all of his memories for Sora, which until now Sora has not had. It can be argued if that was Roxas fully subliming himself into Sora, or if he was just opening his heart, because Roxas does have his own unique heart at this point in time, up to Sora's, and thus Sora was filled with the actual memories of everything that happened. One way or another, though, ironically, that's pretty much the thing that really broke Sora. 
really broke his heart, if you'll forgive me for putting it in such terms, because all of that tragedy, all that pain, all that anguish that Roxas went through, Sora now knew fully and thoroughly, but had no idea how to deal with that, because Sora's never really dealt with that level of tragedy or horror before. Bad things have happened to Sora, but not like that. Not at that level. And so he kept going and was totally unprepared for the darkness, which was just completely surrounding him. I also really like the fact that Sora was very, very violently angry at the nobody deception. It's actually hinted back in Prankster's Paradise. Zemnus mentions something about, you know, how interesting that even a puppet could have a heart. It, it's, it's a bit of foreshadowing for the fact that the nobodies could have hearts. This is something a lot of people, myself included, were theorizing on for a long time uh, until this game came out and fully, you know, showed us that we were right. Yeah, it's awesome. Um, I'm not even kidding. I talked to so many uh, Kingdom Hearts fans about how awesome it was that we were right, and we just started talking about this theory crafting forever. The idea that the nobodies did have hearts to some extent or another. The more they had a, a personal identity, the more interactions they had with others, the stronger and more self-willed those hearts became. It also explained a lot of Axel's uh, in particular interactions, because early on Axel wasn't really that much of a person when you really look at it. He was pretty cold, he didn't have a lot of personality, but then he started interacting with Sora, and then he started interacting with Namine, and then he started interacting with Roxas, and then he started interacting with Xion, and as he starts gathering more and more experiences and people, he became more and more of a person, his heart developed, and we got the Axel we actually know and love, because Axel's freaking awesome, as Axel. And I thought that was incredibly well done and well presented. There's a lot of other little subtleties about that, too. A little hints that are only really obvious in hindsight. For example, one of the biggest rules for 358 days while you're playing as a nobody, don't interact with the people of the world. Don't do it. Now, Roxas actually breaks that rule on several occasions. The reason that rule exists is the more you interact with someone, the more you gain experiences and knowledge, like I just mentioned with Axel, the more your heart develops. And they actually actively wanted the original organization to not develop hearts so they could use them as empty vessels for, well, for the big plan. Which I'll be talking about uh, third to last? It, towards the end. But it, it I, I like the fact that, uh, so that's the nobody deception, the fact that nobody's could have hearts. I love the fact, though, that Sora was so angry about that deception. And the reason why is Kingdom Hearts 2. I love his anger at that because I believe, based on the way he looks, based on his shocked look and then his rage, that he realizes that all the things he did to all those nobodies in Kingdom Hearts 2 were wrong. As I was screaming about through all the time I was playing through Kingdom Hearts 2, and, and as I ranted about when we were playing it on the lore run, Sora was, was acting on a, on a lie, a misguidance. He was deceived. And so he was being, a, frankly, a jerk. And a rather un unpleasant person, all things considered, to the nobodies. And he was so angry about it now because he realized all those horrible things he'd done, and he'd done them all because of a lie that he himself had believed just as much as several of the organization members had. Um, one other thing I do like about this last section, a couple more things to talk about here, a couple more things, is... The only reason Sora was rescuable at all was because of Ventus. Now, I like that because, A, it's kind of a bookend thing. It's kind of a full circle thing. After all, Sora's heart, whether he's an aspect of Kingdom Hearts or not, 
is the only reason Ventus was saved back when Ventus's heart was broken and was about to to basically dissolve into darkness. And now that Sora's heart has been broken and is dissolving into darkness, the only thing that keeps it safe, the only thing that makes it so that he can be rescued, and he still needs to be rescued, of course, is Ventus's heart, which forms the armor around him and the actual last boss of the game. I say the actual last boss. Most people consider young Xehanort to be the true last boss, and I don't really argue. I'm just saying. The actual last fight in the game is against uh, Ventus's armor. Fo uh, formed as a form of, you know, Dream Eater slash Nightmare slash whatever, keeping Sora safe deep, deep, deep within his own heart. Which makes sense. Uh, last thing I want to talk about here, ugh, is that my note, it's just like crazy, is the uh, castle that never was. Now, it could be argued that this only happened because of the whole dream thing. I disagree completely based on the way they present it. One of the unfortunate things in Kingdom Hearts 2 is we never really got a really good idea or scope or presentation of the castle that never was, despite being incredibly cool looking and pretty well designed, all things considered. In general, you had to really go out of your way to try and get an idea for how big and how monstrously huge the place was, and even then it was kind of limited because of hardware limitations. In Dream Drop Distance, the castle that never, won, that never was is gigantic. It is huge! And you really see how huge it is as you're going through the whole place, as you're flow-motioning through you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of yards of castle, you start to realize just how monstrously gigantic this place was. And as you see the the the, the circle of it orbiting in the in the distant background, and, you know, the, the crater, which is even further in the distance, you know, blah, 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 blah. They really did a good job of emphasizing the size and scale and design of the place, is all I'm saying. Very well done. It was an awesome last dungeon. Now... I also really like Riku's journey completing in front of Ansem, the Seeker of Darkness, a.k.a. Xehanort, of all people. Because Riku's journey completes with his final acceptance of the darkness within him, and the fact that he is not ashamed of it, and he can still do good. There's kind of a mistranslation in the English version. This game actually had a, a fair number of mistranslation issues uh, coming to English. I don't know if that's true in European releases. But I just thought I'd mention it, because it explains a few things that I'll be getting into in a bit. But anyways, Riku's acceptance of the darkness that is him, and his belief that he is still going to be a good person despite that. And he gives this revelation to Xehanort, to Ansem the Seeker of Darkness, of all people. Which is hilarious and awesome, given the fact that Xehanort himself also accepted the darkness within him. Just kind of took it in a different direction. And like I said, that's basically Riku's plot arc throughout this whole game in a nutshell is his acceptance and belief of who and what he is and finally, finally, finally coming to grips with you know how he should continue. Uh, before I talk about the last few things here, I want to mention a theory I've heard before. It's a theory that Ansa, the Seeker of Darkness, and Xemnas, uh, the Superior, I guess if you want to attack a title on there, have their own goals and motivations regardless of Xehanort. I personally don't actually uh, think that is true. It certainly could be, but it's interesting to think about the idea because given everything we know, it is very feasible that even though both have the memories of the original, as has been mentioned several times within this series, the more time you spend on your own, the more your heart grows, the more you grow as an individual. I just finished talking about this, actually. So it is very likely that Xemnas has deferred several ways from the original Xehanort, as has Ansem the Seeker of Darkness, so it's not out of line. However, one little touch 
if you're paying attention, is all the time when they're talking about the things that Xehanort has been doing, they refer to them as we. We have been doing this. We have put you here. You are our thing. Uh, this is what we've been done by us. You know, etc., etc. Even Zigbar does this. I like that because it's a nice touch, and it also emphasizes the kind of, for lack of a better term, hive mind, the collective mind that at this point in time is going on through the various uh, Xehanort pieces. Because I always felt like that was the impression I was being given from that, that these were not people who were unique. They were literally, and I, and I mean literally, just a piece of the whole, a piece of the original. Unless they are all, you know, it, it's just very Borg-like if you think about it. They're all the collective. They're all Xehanort. It's just my take on it. <sighs> okay. Time to get serious. Oh my god. Let's talk about time travel. <sighs> okay. <laughs> god almighty. Okay. Where to begin? Ah, yes. Concerning hobbits. I've said that joke too much lately. The... <sighs> okay, okay, okay. The problem is, where to begin is kind of the hard part. There are two ways to look at the time travel of this game. Of this series, actually. One. One involves a violation of the rules, thanks to circumstance. The other does not. I like this one, personally. Uh, this was my original theory until I sat down and really, really, really analyzed and thought about it. I was like, well... Actually, if you think of it from a different perspective, they never did break the rules. <sighs> Here are the so-called rules of time travel. You can only travel to and from some place where you have an anchor. That anchor has to be some form or version of yourself, regardless. Once you have initiated time travel, you can only, from that point on, travel forward. At some point in time, you have to recall... In other words, go back to wherever you started from time traveling from and when. And when you do that, all of the actual specific memories of what you have done are erased. However, the events still have an effect on your heart. And so there's still echoes and, and you know, feelings and whatnot. It, the general, same general kind of thing where Sora can still cry when he sees Shion, even though he has no idea who she is. That kind of a thing. Now, if we assume... I, I'm going to explain the breaking the rules thing first. The breaking the rules thing was done by Ansem of the Seeker of Narcos. Now, there's one thing that's very important to note about time travel, and this is something that explains a lot. Time travel in this series is a skill, a whether it is a spell or an ability or something that the key laborers can use. It is something that you know how to do. We don't know how many people know this knowledge or have this skill. Given the limitation... Oh, there's one other limitation. Uh, sorry, forgive me. This is kind of important. You have to leave your body behind to do it, um, which is kind of important and also may or may not be true. We'll get to that in a moment. Just bear with me. But due to the severe limitations of time travel, it's likely most people don't do it because you basically can't do it in, this, in, the, in, a, in the manner that you actually want to, if you follow me. It is also worth noting, by the way, if you think about it, that the... Uh, the time travel that happened in Kingdom Hearts 2 does actually follow all these rules. Kinda. It doesn't actually follow the abandoning your body rule that I mentioned. 
but then again, they do use, they don't actually use a skill to go through time. They use a doorway, which just kind of happens for some reason. So that could be, I, I think that is an effective way to explain why they keep their bodies, because they're actually using a device to travel through time rather than trying to travel through time themselves, which requires just their heart and their you know minds and souls traveling through time rather than their bodies. So, okay, fine, we're with that. Where the time-traveling ability came from is kind of an interesting thought to me, because it is possible that several people are aware of this skill. Yensid would be a good uh, possibility. Ansem the Wise is another good possibility, and several of the other researchers. Uh, I can't think of anyone else off the top of my head, but I think several people would at least have the idea, knowledge, skill of it, and just don't use it due to the severe detriments of it. Or... It is also possible that Ansem, the Seeker of Darkness, who, from this point on, I'm probably just going to call him Ansem for the sake of simplicity, because I don't feel like saying the Seeker of Darkness at all, and I'm going to be calling, saying Ansem a lot in the next few minutes. Ansem, yeah, that one, um, he learned how to travel through time because he learned it from himself, basically. I don't mean it's... <laughs> The idea here is that when young Xehanort traveled through time, obviously when he completed, his memories are wiped. That's pretty much established canon at this point. And yet the, the abilities, the knowledge, the etching in his heart is still there, right? And from that he could extrapolate with his skill and knowledge and how to time travel later, right? Well, it's also possible he could have kind of bent the rules to give himself the ability to travel through time in addition to giving the younger himself the ability to travel through time. Which admittedly actually makes a lot of sense to me, because it, it kind of ties up the time travel thing neatly with a bow. It means the only one who actually has that ability is Xehanort, and he only has it because he had it. Because he had it, because he had it. It's a self-propelled paradox. It, nobody else will ever learn it because that information came from nowhere. You see where I'm going with that? But let's assume Ansem broke the rules. And how many rules he broke depends on how you perceive the manner of events. But there is one rule uh, that he definitely broke. We'll get to that in a moment. So Ansem, the Seeker of Darkness, abandons his body so he can travel through time. Okay. Now, the very first thing he did most likely, this is kind of debatable, the order of these events is debatable, and it does actually kind of matter. Basically, he either broke the rule of only being able to go forward in time after your initial travel, or he didn't. I'm going to go under the assumption that he did break that rule, because he didn't have a body, because he could go wherever, because he had abandoned his body completely. He was literally a moving intellectual heart. It is also worth noting that the only reason this worked is because he was still a self-willed heart with all of his skill, knowledge, and power, despite having no body. I mention this because I think he's actually the only ex uh, example of this. Well, okay, with two exceptions. He is one of the only examples of someone who is just a heart and nothing else who still has an impact on the world around him. The other examples being, you know, the obvious ones. Um, I'm not going to go to that. So Ansem goes back. First thing he does, if I were to say this properly, is I would say the first thing he does is he goes back and he tells himself, uh, probably not too long ago, how, the skill and knowledge of how to travel through time. Okay. Then he goes back further. There's the first rule he violates. He goes back in addition to... He goes back after his initial travel. Okay. He goes back to young Xehanort, and then he gives that young Xehanort all the skill and knowledge. Now, 
this is kind of really important, the way this lays out. Because he gave it to young Xehanort, so Z young Xehanort could arrange the sequence of events for Dream Drop Distance specifically, for the events that happen in the timeline, you can't see this, in the timeline of Dream Drop Distance, right? This is all young Xehanort's time manipulations, with two exceptions. One, the next thing Ansem, Seeker of Darkness Goat, does is he uh, moves to the quote-unquote present where to Destiny Islands. Why? Because he knows, thanks to the memories of Terra within him, that there are two children on that planet who will be very, very likely candidates for his, uh, his, his means, his ends, Keyblade wielders who could both be used to further his plans and eventually become another vessel or vessels for him. Now, as he does this, Riku gives him the darkness and vanishes, and, Sor and Kairi vanishes into Sora. This is actually really cool, because this also ties up a tiny little plot thread from way back in Kingdom Hearts 1. Why is it that Ansem knew that Kairi's heart was in Sora when nobody else did? Nobody else even guessed that. How did Ansem know that? Because he was there. He was there. He saw it happen. He knew what happened because he was present and probably trying to interact with the hearts of Riku and, and uh, Sora when the incident occurred. Next thing he does is he jumps forward uh, quite a bit, actually, to the events at the beginning of Dream Drop Distance in order, and right at the beginning of the game when he shoves Sora into sleep, whatever that means. I, I've already mentioned that like three times now. He does that to Sora and marks him with the recusant symbol. Uh, which I'm not even sure if I'm pronouncing right. They only say it once in the whole game. So then, then he breaks the rules even more. Because then he goes back again, which, as we already established, you shouldn't be able to do. And he possesses Riku, Riku's body. Now, because he now has a body, he can't break the rules of time travel anymore. But he already broke the biggest rule in a huge way. He didn't have to revert. He didn't have to go back to the point at which he started time traveling. And therefore, he keeps all his memories of all the events that he's already seen. You see where I'm going with this? So then, why? That, that's the first big reason why possess Riku, why give up that power. The second big reason is because he needed Riku to be an anchor for young Xehanort. Because remember, under the standard rules of time travel... Oh, it's also worth noting, by the way, that even... Um, even Ansem, never actually broke that rule. Every point he travels to in time, in some way or another, has some kind of anchor point for him, with the theoretical exception of the moment in Destiny Islands, which is another reason why I say he broke the rules there. There was no anchor point for him there. It could, it, that's still not necessarily incongruent, it could be the fact that he just, I'll get to that when I get to the second theory. Point being, when he possessed Riku, he knew that a piece of him would stay within Riku's heart for a long time hence, and does. Uh, we're actually not even sure if he is, in fact, gone from Riku's heart at the end of Dream Drop Distance. He might be with Riku's final acceptance of who and what he is. In fact, I think it's actually very likely that Ansem is finally gone from Riku's heart after Dream Drop Distance. But the point is, up until the end, until the very end of Dream Drop Distance, Riku, from that point on, is serving as an anchor for young Xehanort. That's how young Xehanort is able to travel into Sora's dreams. And into Riku, obviously. Into uh, Riku's visibility within Sora's dreams. But you get the point. Because Riku is acting as an anchor for him. There always has to be an anchor. That's really important. I already mentioned that. Now, the other... Uh, okay, so that's what he does. Now, young Xehanort... <laughs> young Xehanort uh, travels to the future 
stops briefly at Birthly Sleep to gain knowledge, skill, and a keyblade. Then he moves even further into the future, to the point where he can uh, basically start manipulating Sora's journey. It is debatable who was actually doing this, but I believe, based on the evidence, that Xehanort, young Xehanort himself was the one guiding Sora in his path through the realms of sleep until he ended up in the world that never was. And young Xehanort is the one who... Excuse me. Who brings the various versions of himself there. Now, because young Xehanort... This is pretty solidly true. Young Xehanort has to obey the rules of time travel, right? In this first theory, there is something that is either a plot hole or a mistranslation. Because young Xehanort's body is not abandoned in his time travel. I've actually... Uh, was hoping to get uh, a friend. I, I know several people who work on translations in Japanese. I've mentioned this before. Uh, he hasn't played <laughs> Dream Drop Distance, and I can't easily procure uh, screenshots of the Japanese text for him. So I was kind of hoping to have his, uh, you know, his his advice, his cons consultation on this. So I'm not 100% sure. Forgive me, but he believes it's very likely that the rule of having to abandon your body as I described it to him, is something that only applies if you don't follow all the other rules. In other words, young Xehanort doesn't have to abandon his body because he is moving linearly through time, forward, he is going to lose all his memories once he reverts, and he always is moving forward to an anchor point. So he is following all the rules of time travel, so he gets to keep his body. Regardless, he goes forward, starts grabbing the various forms of Xehanort, grabs, uh, grabs Ansem, the Seeker of Darkness, from before, you know, he was defeated, before he even uh, abandoned his body, for that matter, before... You get my point. In other words, Ansem abandons his body and then goes back, but the Ansem that is grabbed for this is actually from before that. Makes sense? Then he grabs Xemnas from before the end of Kingdom Hearts 2, and he brings them forward, and they go through their events throughout Dream Drop Distance. It reaches the big critical moment when all of them are there, and then something interesting happens. And then, uh, and then young Xehanort reverts, as I mentioned before. He returns and loses his memory, but everything's nice and etched. I'll talk about the event after that in a moment, because now we're going to switch gears a bit and go to the other theory in which nobody actually breaks the rules of time travel at all. This is a little bit weird. Bear with me. Ansem, the Seeker of Darkness, has the skill to travel through time from wherever source. doesn't actually matter for the purposes of this theory. He abandons his body in order to be able to travel through time. Okay. He goes back. First thing he does is he goes back to young Xehanort. Teaches that person how to use that ability and that power and that strength. Okay. Then young Xehanort abandons his body. You probably already get where I'm going with this, actually. See... If you're really paying careful attention to the inception levels of dreams and dreams and dreams and dreams and dreams and dreams that are going on towards the end of the game, it's actually really, really likely that the events of the big climactic showdown with Master Xehanort are still happening in a dream. Because we started in a dream, right? And that's where, uh, that's where Riku was, in a dream of Sora, okay? But then Sora goes down a level. Now, does that whether that shoves Riku down a level or not is kind of debatable, but the point is Sora goes down a level, and then Sora is is then pulled in the level up into the thing, but the level up was already in a dream, and Riku was already in a dream. Now, Riku says he's awakened to the real world, but all he's actually done is gone up one level to where Sora was in another dream. You see where I'm going with this? 
the idea here is that the world that never was was uh, either probably deliberately shoved into the realm of sleep specifically for this event. Why? Because you have to abandon your body to travel through time. In order to get all his various forms here other than he himself, they had to be able to move in a way that did not involve their body. And the only way they could actually manifest if they did that in order to interact with their surroundings was if they were in a dream. So Xehanort abandons his body, goes forward, and as a, you know, and, and then most of the events that happened that we see Ansem, the Seeker of Darkness, doing were either Ansem or young Xehanort. We don't actually know because when he's traveling out in the real world, he has no body, you see? Regardless, he picks up Ansem, he picks up Xemnas, uh, he shoves, he or Ansem, one of the two, shoves Sora into the thing. By the way, it's most likely that what actually happened, if this is true, is Ansem, Seeker of Darkness, abandons his body, goes back and gives him the skill, uh, travels forward significantly while he's still aware of all the plans and all the of the inter information that he gets from, from his time travel, up here to the present, a.k.a. Uh, Dream Drop Distance's intro, where he shoves Sora into the thing, then he reverts back here, at which point in time he still has no body but no memories of what happened, and that's when he goes to Destiny Islands uh, with no anchor, but he's still following the, he's still following the rules, because he doesn't need an anchor. He just goes there, you know, because he's already existed in that time. You see where I'm going with that. So again, no rule-breaking going on here. So then they are brought forward into the dream realm, where they all manifest as dreams, all 13 of them. Now, you may be asking, well, how do other people get into the dream? You remember what I mentioned way back in the beginning, how important it was that Riku could go into Sora's dreams? This is why, because this is how this works. Riku, Mickey, Donald, Goofy, and Lee, not Axel, <laughs> Lee all go into this dream, whether it's Sora's dream or the dream level above that, we, we, I don't know. It could be either based on whether or not the whole level moved up or whether it moved like this. And so you see where I'm going with that. So all of the Xehanorts, possibly including Master Xehanort himself, but I don't think so. I'll get to that in a moment. All the Xehanorts are brought in dream status through this time travel to this point in time so they could all gather for this big meeting. And then Master Xehanort reconstitutes. That's when he is actually rebuilt in this dream realm, in this place that he has specifically designed and built to do that. And then within the dream, he intends to go ahead and replace Sora's heart with a piece of his own. Sora, having already been completely consumed by darkness, it's actually debatable if this would have worked or not. It is probable that it would have, because we know that Terranort had Xehanort's heart in him, even though Terra and Ericus still existed in that body. So... Yeah, it's very likely he still would have existed even if Terra, uh, excuse me, uh, Sora's heart still existed in the Vene uh, the Ventus armor inside him. But point being, he goes to replace Sora's heart because you can affect a heart, you can affect people within the dream. You can still do stuff to them there, right? But that is of course interrupted. Did he intend to be interrupted? I'm not sure. I'm gonna go ahead and say no. But if you pay attention, him being interrupted doesn't change his plans at all. Whether they were actually in the world that never was, in the realm in between, in the real, you know, in, in no, no dream layers here, they're in the real world, right? Or whether they existed within the realm of sleep, in a, in a dreamt world that never was, both ways, as soon as their time is up, all the Xehanorts disperse. Why? Because Xehanort's smart. He knows that the thing he wants most is to recreate this Keyblade War. 
and therefore he knows that the best thing he can do in order to convince the enemy to do that is to state openly, I am going to restart the Keyblade War. I have 13 darknesses. Do you have 7 lights? If you don't, I'm coming after you anyways. He convinces the heroes to do exactly what the heroes do in the secret ending. Yen Sid says, says it himself. If we don't make 7 guardians to fight against his 13, guardi uh, 13 darknesses, he will just come after us anyways and take the lights, and then the, and then the same result will happen anyways. We have to fight back. So Xehanort stages all of this specifically to ensure that they are going to be prepared. He wasn't preparing his 13 darknesses with this maneuver, is basically what I'm saying. He was preparing the 7 lights with this maneuver. I think in Kingdom Hearts 3 we will see him actually preparing the 13 darknesses. Because no matter how you look at it, whether they're in the dream world or they're in the real world, there was no way they were going to maintain this. They don't just, if, if they had made Sora the 13th, they wouldn't all then ma maintain cohesion. They would have still run out of time. They would have still been reverted back through time. He still wouldn't have had his 13 darknesses. But he acts the whole time like he does, and when he fails, when he fails to, I just changed my mind, when he fails to, to take Sora because of the interference of the others, he then, he then acts like he has been defeated, and I will gather my 13 darknesses in due time. I think that was deliberate. I think he wanted them to interrupt him so they would assume that he had failed, even though he knew he would never be able to do this now to begin with. He always knew he would have to do the 13 later. You see where I'm going? Yeah, you see it? Oh my god, that's actually really cool. I hadn't thought about that before. So, um... Yeah, I guess I'm actually done. <laughs> I, I really wanted to, the, the time travel thing. Believe it or not, I spent a while sitting down and analyzing it. And like I said, I originally was starting with the breaking the rules thing. But as I started to think about it more, I realized they actually kind of don't if you look at it from a certain perspective. And the more I think about it, as much as I like the breaking the rules theory, I think the fact that they didn't break the rules is actually canon. I think that's what actually happened. I think that the world that never was at the end was, in fact, in another dream in a sleeping realm, and that's how they were able to manifest there in bodies, even though they didn't have any at the time. Because that's how dreams work. That's the morphic nature of it. And Riku himself is a great example of that. I mean, look at his back. Look at his outfit. Look at his appearance. Huh. So, that's uh, that's that. Um, I suppose... Is that everything? Did I describe everything about the temple? I didn't describe one thing about Zigbar yet. <sighs> having replayed the game and having reanalyzed... I am unfortunately forced to admit that it is very likely that they're not doing anything with Zigbar. It is very likely that all the hinting about Zigbar and all the little niggling details about him that don't fit, and the little secrets about him, and the interesting aspects of the character, don't mean anything. Basically, that, they, that it's just the fact that he became the first, or I guess actually, excuse me, the second vessel of Xehanort, way back towards the end of Birth by Sleep, prior to Kingdom Hearts 1 even beginning. And that's all Zigbar's been this whole time, is a slowly growing Xehanort clone. Or par part of the collective mind, to put it more accurately, the Xehanort mind. <sighs> Which is unfortunate. I still hold out hope that he will become a Jin-type character, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, don't stress it. <laughs> I also want to mention that... One of the things that has been brought up before is the so-called resurrection of Saix and uh, Zigbar. Zigbar is much easier to explain. Whether he has his own thing going on and is pretending to be in collusion with Xehanort, or whether or not he is actually a Xehanort clone, it would be very, very, very easy after his fight with Sora back in Kingdom Hearts 2 to basically pretend to die and fade away. 
we see him actually lose and and pretend to die and are not pretend to die. We see him lose many many other occasions. We've seen many occasions throughout the series where someone will lose and not die. They just kind of are defeated, right? How that happens to Zemnus in this very same game. So it's not really all that out of out of line that Zigbar was pretending to have been defeated and returned to the darkness and was just fading away in his usual translation ability, which he does frequently, I might add. Syax is a little more interesting, a little more tragic. Because I think the same basic thing was happening. I think that as, as we defeated Syax in Kingdom Hearts 2, the last bit of Issa, or Isa, they actually pronounce it both ways, um, in Syax was the one who said that final line, Kingdom Hearts, where is my heart? And as he faded away, that was the Xehanort that was already a part of him, that was pulling him away in the same way Zigbar did, and from that point on, Isa or Isa or whatever is probably genuinely actually gone. And all that's left is the Xehanort clone that is in him. Oh, by the way, speaking of which, in case you never caught it, Syax? Yeah. The sigil on his frickin' face. Now let's let's clear something up really quick. This is the last thing I'll be talking about. Uh, the recusance symbol, sigil, is something that is, is hugely talked about in Theory Crafters and the forums and whatnot of Kingdom Hearts fans, and, and I myself am no exception to that. One of the things I personally think, and I know a lot of people agree with me on this, is that the sigil does not, every single time it happens, mean that Xehanort put it there. But it is without question that Nomura put it there on purpose each time. That the sigil itself has significance past Xehanort past his manipulations, past everything that he's been doing. So it is very likely that the very many times we say the sigil, it is there deliberately for some thematic purpose. Let me just go over a few for the... For the I already mentioned the big one, Syx's face being marked like that. Um, back in Birth by Sleep, all three characters have a sigil of sorts in their outfit. Ventus and Aqua both have a symbol of mastery interrupting the symbol, making it so it doesn't actually isn't actually complete. Terra does not. Um, I don't think, and again, I don't think Xehanort did that, but I think that was very deliberately done by Nomura, which is my point. I, I'm sorry, I don't mean I think, I know. He's, he's gone on record as saying he's done this very deliberately. The X is a huge part of the symbolic uh, nature. It, it appears all freaking over the place in the entire series. Um, the, uh, you know, I actually had a list, and I'm sorry for not having it present here, that I was going over of the many, many, many times it's shown up in the series. One of the other ones that is uh, interesting to me, though, is the one for Roxas as to whether or not it actually is one or not, is actually what the, the interesting part is. I personally think it is one, but not one that was put there... Well, let's just say that... Okay, it was definitely put there by Xehanort. Xehanort himself says how Roxas was... Or somebody says it. How Roxas was going to be the... You know, he was such an ideal candidate for become one of the Xehanort clones, but he became too much of an individual. The fact that he had that thing pretty much the moment he first began, and when he was given his name, Roxas, with the X again... I think it's absolutely certain that that was put there deliberately, specifically to mark him. Not necessarily mark him in the way of, I'm going to use that to track you, like they do in Dream Drop Distance. It's very likely that not all of these examples, even the ones that are done deliberately by Xehanort, are there to track the person. It's more of a symbolic thing. I have marked you. This is, you know, I, I will take you in due time. You will become, you know, one of my 13 darknesses, that kind of a thing. I'm sorry, I don't remember all the others. But I really wanted to point out that the, uh... 
Uh, it put simply, when you really think about the mythology of the series... Uh, oh, I'm sorry. There's one other one I want to point out really quick. It's pretty obvious. <clears throat> Remember, this was designed, this emblem was designed by Ansem the Seeker of Darkness, a.k.a. Xehanort. And of course, the one in the nobody symbol is also very obvious. Moving along. One of the things in the overall mythology, in the, in the premise of the series, is the idea of balance and, you know, the three points, right? That is everywhere. That is absolutely everywhere. I, I could do an essay about that. But the this this emblem emphasizes that so well when you really think about it, because it's very balanced against itself. It's very... Uh, I suddenly can't think of the word. Not parallel. Uh, oh my god. I, I can't think of the word. It's balanced against itself, uh, aesthetically. It's something that is representative of the idea of... Well, if you think about it like this way, think about like this one being darkness, right? And this one being light. And this point in the middle here is where they connect, the in-between. All three points are actually representative with this, within this uh, symbol, within the X. And, of course, I could go into what that uh, the Chi symbol actually means in Greek, which basically kind of personifies this, blah, 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 blah. The point being, really, this is something that Nomura has gone on record saying he has been doing since the beginning on purpose. However, he has also admitted he didn't know how far it would go when he first started. I talked about this way back in Kingdom Hearts 1, about how they made Kingdom Hearts 1, and they didn't know if it was going to be a series. So he did this whole X thing deliberately and constantly, but he did it just because he liked the symbolism of it and the, and the Kai nature of it, uh, using the Greek word, the Greek letter, excuse me. But then he decided, okay, we're actually doing a series. That's when he fleshed this out. That's when he made this significant of the series, of the concept. And basically the whole Kingdom Hearts series could be emphasized by that one recusant symbol. Now, last thing, absolute last thing I'm going to talk about, I swear. Kingdom Hearts 3. Obviously, Dream Drop Distance is the most recent game. Like I said, it very much is the, the Empire Strikes Back of the Kingdom Hearts series. It, in, in, well, okay, not like that. But I mean, it builds up everything. It ties absolutely everything from the entire series together and says, okay, we're now ready for the finale, which is Kingdom Hearts 3. I really hope it's going to be good. Because I'm not sure it's going to be. I don't mean to sound cynical or pessimistic, but the odds are better that it will be bad than they are that it will be good. And I'm really, really hopeful... It's coming out on a system I don't even own, and I'm not even sure if I'm going to be able to own when it comes out. You know, I'm just really, really worried. I'm curious what you guys think. We know so little about it. We also know that they're not even fully working on it yet, that only some of the team's working on it. And that's basically all we know. If any of you have any thoughts, feel free to share them as always. Otherwise, I guess I'll see you whenever the next one comes out.